Hello, and welcome to episode six of Green Signals, your railway podcast with me, Nigel Harris, in a very grey, misty uh, Lincolnshire. I think the Scots call it Dreek. Well, it's not, it's not so bad, different here. There's Richard Bowker here in Derbyshire, and it's similarly Dreek. Good word, isn't it? I love that word. It's a great word. But there you go. We uh, our word of the podcast. We normally get at least one word. That's a, gr- <laughs> a great example of the English language. Hopefully, many, but a bit distinctive. So, our focus today is our old friend HS two. Now, you know, we have got lots of other subjects which Richard and I and Steph are working up, um, and we'll be covering them. But we've got to cover what's topical and important. And HS two does remain very topical and very important. Um, And in particular, the appearance of the Green Signals team, as represented by Richard and I, at the Transport Select Committee. In fairness, our presence as witnesses was relevant um, as much, I suppose, for my four decades as a National Rail journalist and Richard's very expensive rail industry and political experience and political government experience uh, as chair and chief executive of the Strategic Rail Authority and co-chair of the Virgin Rail Group and lots more besides. But it was Green Signals episode two, which prompted our invite, wasn't it, Richard? So, I think it was. So, you know, to have got that degree of awareness after a month after launch, we're, we're pretty pleased with that. Yeah. It was a demanding session at the TSC and included some questions <laughs> that were so far wider than Mark, they might as well have been in the next room from some of the members there. No names, no pack drills. It was very courteous, though. I have to say, we, we you know, we, it was a... It was a good session from that point of view. It was courteous BS, but BS nonetheless in, <laughs> in some places. All right, I did so, try. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. And Richard and I were joined on the panel of witnesses by, amongst others, internationally respected civil engineer, Professor Andrew McNaughton, who was actually one of HS2's first two employees um, back in 2009 with David Rowlands. Uh, and Andrew served as HS2's tech director for nine years, from 2009 to 2017. He pre- before that, he'd been Network Rail's chief engineer, so he knows more than a thing or two about rail engineering across the piece. So we were delighted that Andrew joins us as our guest today. Few people know or understand HS2 even half as well as Andrew, so stay tuned. Though there is a lot to get through, you might want to get a flask of coffee and some snacks ready because it's a slightly longer programme than is usual. So let's crack on and first the King's speech. This was an historic occasion in Parliament because it was King Charles III's first King's speech. He only stood in for his unwell mother, Queen Elizabeth II, delivering the speech last year. And this was the first King's speech in 70 years. So That's a bit amazing. of a landmark. Absolutely. To everyone's surprise, perhaps, railways did make it just into the speech with mention of Great British Railways, no less. Now, Richard, and this seems to be becoming a bit of a routine for me to say at this point in the show, you were a bit less than impressed again, weren't you, Richard? <laughs> I was. I mean, I, I'm probably guilty of channeling my inner Victor Meldrew, you know. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, but my, my problem is this, right? We had the Williams-Shapps plan two and a half years ago, right? And that was what's called a white paper. And a white paper is basically something which sort of sets out uh, policy direction and gives 
everybody who might be interested the opportunity to sort of chip in really whilst the government then develops draft legislation so you know that's what a white paper is supposed to be that was two and a half years ago right and what we now get sorry I was saying there's been plenty of views and bits chipped in for oh, for, yeah. for him to have discussed and imp- included the important bits or the bits that convinced him. Sorry, I interrupted. You. No, but it, you're right. It, it, there's been lots of opportunity um, to do that, and there's no there's no lack of opinion, right? Which does make it harder. I I, I do accept that. But now what we're going to have is a draft bill, not an actual bill, and the arguments given for doing that were because it's very complicated um, and this gives the opportunity for people to comment on sort of draft legislation again again and I just wonder whether you know they really understand the urgency now the argument will be yeah but the white paper was sort of policy and direction this is going to be draft legislation okay I get that but still this is taking too long and the argument that it's very complex I'm not sure holds as much water it used to be it used to be quite complicated when you had train operate operating companies all with franchises all with track access agreements all with commercial contracts but now that they're all we don't now, have that. no they're all kind of creatures of government really um the uh, respected railway journalist roger ford did say that he felt it was possibly because of uh you know real and imagined traumas in the past about the way that different parts of the industry had worked or not work together and he may well be right i mean he's 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 very experienced however i also have a slightly cynical view which is that i think the government the officials particularly at the department for transport and the treasury have seized control over the last sort of 20 years and they're kind of reluctant to let that go because they the treasury just think it's all a bit of a money pit um so i wonder whether that's partly uh, what what's going on but either way what we haven't got is time to mess around whilst um, the industry is in has got some really serious issues. So that's my concern. It's just taking too long. There's not enough pace. Your analogy about a patient, which you gave to me, was a good one, Richard. Well, it's a bit like a multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary hospital team stood in the operating theatre debating about how to carry out the operation whilst and the patient dies in front of them. That's that's the worry. That that's right. Um, <laughs> you talked about Rogers' views, and you're right. But uh, traumas from previous experiences, which may have included the SRA and the rail regulator, Richard. So you may have been one of the traumas of the past. Oh, it's quite more more than possible. <laughs> Three weeks ago, green signals was mentioned in a parliamentary question, which was pretty good going. We felt for, after only two or three weeks since launch. When the Secretary of State for Transport was asked a question by Ian Stewart, who's the chair of the TSC. Last week, we told you that we'd actually been invited to give evidence at the Transport Select Committee following episode two of Green Signals, the HS2 Myths episode. Um, And this week, we can tell you that we've actually done it. And as you can see, Richard and I both emerged unscathed. Um, We've both appeared before the Transport Select Committee before, um, Richard's done it many times. It was my third outing. But before we dive into the detail, Richard, just explain briefly what a select committee is um, and what the point of last, meet, last week's hearing actually was. Sure. Well, a select committee is the process by which Parliament scrutinises, and scrutiny is the, is the key word here, how 
legislation and the business of government is working in in practice. Um, uh, you could almost, I suppose, call it a little bit like an internal audit department. It's, it's okay. more than that, but it's it's scrutiny. Um, there tends to be a committee per department. So there's one for transport, one for justice, one for, you know, home affairs. There's a couple that are overarching, like um, the Public Accounts Committee is a good example of that, which looks at spending across all departments. But by and large, they're, they're per department. They can go into great detail on any topic they choose, though it's often set by the news agenda. Um, they announce an inquiry, although in this case, it's kind of an ongoing process looking at HS2. Uh, and then they publish clearly what their core questions are going to be um, ahead of, of any inquiry. Um, they can take evidence from whomever they want. You can, as a member of the public, you can submit written evidence. And then the committee will decide who to invite to give oral evidence in person. And those sessions are held in public. And that's what the three of us did last week. It was an oral evidence in public. Um, the one last week was kind of just gathering evidence partly ahead of a, um, a, when the Secretary of State for Transport comes and uh, is is questioned by the committee. So they've got some background from sort of experts in the field. Um, at the end of a hearing, they'll publish a report. Uh, I think the government has about eight weeks to respond to that. And these are serious things. The government can't just ignore them. You know, they can't, they can't give glib answers when they're being questioned, and they can't give glib responses when they're the report is published. So select committees are a serious thing. Uh, they do a great job, and it's an important job, and you you, you take them seriously. Indeed. So, uh, I mean, they are quite daunting. I mean, you've done dozens of them, I guess, and certainly the PAC, which is a daddy of them all, I guess. Um, I've done them, I've, my third outing, and it is very daunting. Um, I've been to many of them and sat down the side in the press seats in both the, the palace and in Port Cullis House. Um, but it's hard to describe, and I'm, I'm, I guess you'd agree, um, the, the sense of sort of adrenaline and everything else when you sit at that witnesses table looking down um, and, the, and the chair fixes you with their BDI and asks you a question directly. And, you know, it's going into Hansard, it's being broadcast on parliamentary TV. Whatever you say is there forever. It certainly is. It is there forever. Right, so let's get straight into last week's select committee, which was actually great fun. Once you get going, I, I do enjoy them. Um, and welcome our major guest, the third guest we've had to follow, Mark Smith, ticket and fares guru, Mark um, Hopwood from GWR last week. We've got Professor Andrew McNaughton, um, who was technical director at, at HS2 from 2009 to 2017, um, Andrew, we talked about lots of stuff at the TSC, and it was an extensive session, well over two hours. So we um, yeah. we covered a lot of ground, and certain members of the committee, and I think it's probably wise that we don't mention names in this podcast, um, seemed obsessed with the belief that speed and intensity of use, the number of trains per hour, are high drivers of extra cost. You very patiently explained otherwise, Andrew, in the face of some quite condescending questioning, I thought. Um, so, Richard, have you got a, a bit of a view about that? No, I think, uh, you know, Andrew did a fantastic job in the committee. I think, you know, um, what do we think? Um, does, does, the, does the speed drive costs sort of in a linear fashion or not? Well, the point I was making, and Richard, you're absolutely right. Um, the ch 
one of the challenges of facing uh, a select committee is you have to deal with fact. Um, and if you misstate anything, you have to correct it very, very quickly. It is a serious business. And amongst the many myths, and you mentioned myths of high speed too, is that the costs are driven by by the speed. And I wanted to pull them back to all the evidence created for the original bill, now the Act for Phase 1, which demonstrated that was really not the case. There are some additional costs of going fast over not going fast. They're principally about dealing with increased noise. So there are okay. some extra costs around the extent and size of noise barriers. But fundamentally, that's pretty much it. Um, the alignment, again, I heard people say, oh, it's arrow straight and if it could go all over the place, it'd be cheaper. Uh, we demonstrated, with the help of Arup back in you know, 2012, 2014, 2016, all the way through the process, uh, that that was not the case. In fact, if you went on a spree around half of England, it would cost you more because it'd be longer. Uh, the reality is that the geography dictates that rather than the the absolute and what do i mean by that we thread we threaded high speed to between villages between villages mm. and when you joined up the dots of those optimum places between villages so that we had the least impact and missed out important historical or environmental features we ended up with a route that was capable of very high speeds indeed we were then challenged in consultation about what would change if you reduce the speed from nominally 360 kilometers an hour, that's 225 miles an hour in old money, uh, back down to 300, 186 miles an hour. And the answer was, you wouldn't have changed the alignment at all. If you did, you would simply move it closer to a village to move it away from another village. So it's a nonsense. But as I say, there are a few things which do cost a bit more. But it's the same tunnels which were there because people wanted them on the grounds of not wanting to see the railway. There's the same viaducts. There's the same earthworks. It really is only a few percent on the total cost. And so, I mean so by a few... The, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, sorry, on the, uh, on the <clears> tunnels <throat> point, Andrew, that's really, that, that's really interesting because... I mean, for the, to the layman, to the non-engineer, you're thinking, here's a train going through a tunnel. It's, it's acting like a piston. Um, so it's pushing quite a lot of air as it goes through. Yeah. And we're saying that that actually doesn't make a huge amount of difference how fast that train goes through that tunnel. It makes some difference. But in when you look at the cost, the main cost of a tunnel is digging the hole. Yeah. Um, and then providing the fire safety equipment, the fans for smoke, um, the ventilation, the escape shafts, the extra over for going faster is not that great. There's only one tunnel on the fast stretch, uh, and that's out at Long Itchington Wood in Warwickshire. 
The other tunnels, like the tunnels between Euston and Old Oak Common, are the same sort of tunnels as you got on High Speed 1 because the trains are not accelerated to that speed at that point. That makes sense. Yeah. Or the ones out through that were insisted on in the end through West Ryslip, where the original line was on the surface alongside the central line. Um, but when that was put into tunnel, again, as a result of public consultation, not as a result of speed, because the line is dead straight there. It's a dead straight corridor. Um, the speed, again, pulling out of Old Oak Common is not very, very high speed. So when you look at issues like, for instance, the track itself, um, so the decision was taken to go, I think, with a slab track rather than a, a That's ballast right. yeah. track, and it might be worth explaining what, what the difference between those two things is. Again, does, that, does the track formation change as a result of going faster, or is it that, again, another bit of a myth? No, the track formation changes when you get to a critical amount of tonnage, which you can call number of trains an hour or intensity of use. And the worldwide research has shown that once you get more than 10 or 11 trains an hour, <clears throat> and high speed two is designed for maximum capacity, which is a lot higher than that, then the whole life cost, the whole life cost is cheaper if you go for a, a concrete slab track, which is what you see in Germany now, uh, rather than conventional ballasted track with sleepers. But speed does not dictate that. If you go to France, where there are some very high speed lines, which are not used by many trains an hour, six or seven trains an hour. It works perfectly well with ballasted track, uh, like the TGV line from Paris to Strasbourg and things like that. But once you get above that sort of, I call it 11, 12, it, it's, there's not a sort of totally magic point, but 11 or 12 trains an hour, then if you have ballasted track, then you're virtually going in to maintain it very, very frequently because of the wear and tear. But it's not because of the speed. It's because the amount you're using it. Okay. So the, the fact that it was planned to be very heavily used does impact the cost because we go for a, a more expensive track form that needs a solid foundation. And of course, you get to more complicated stations because there's more trains. Yeah, sure. But it is the usage that increases the cost somewhat. But it's still only a small percentage because you're still building viaducts and tunnels and earthworks and stations and all the other paraphernalia and the signaling systems. And that does not change. And I suppose I one could argue that by investing in that capital up front for instance like the slab track the whole life cost as you describe it um comes down because the ongoing maintenance is is reduced so one could argue it's actually a very sensible cost decision not not the opposite well we went we went through that quite for quite a long time because it did put some capital cost in but mm. the the quid pro quo is less maintenance higher reliability less nighttime maintenance 
around all those villages that were concerned about the 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 noise that would come from a, a railway that they hadn't got at that time. So there are a number of benefits from building the thing right in the first place. Yeah. Uh, financial, but also don't forget less maintenance means, uh, apart from less maintenance costs, it means less nighttime working uh, along the railway. You mentioned capacity um, and yeah. the capacity of, of HS2, particularly phase one. Um, why why did we design a railway that could take so many trains per hour on that kind of core pipe? I'm probably sort of slightly leading the jury there, <laughs> but on that core pipe, why was it to, able to take so many trains? Because as you rightly said, that has dictated some of the cost. Yeah. When we look at successful high-speed railways around the world, they were often designed for what they thought was the traffic of the time. But 20 or 30 years later, they've been successful. More trains are being run. More more places at the end of the line want to be connected. And actually, a good example is Paris to Lyon, uh, the first trunk railway in, in, in France, designed very similarly to or the same reason to design it was we're running out of capacity on the existing railway. We need to build a new line. We can't sensibly upgrade the old line anymore. And if we're building a new line, we might as well build it to go faster because what I said before, the costs are incrementally quite small. Uh, but that line is running at capacity. They are trying to work out how to backfit slab track onto an existing railway without shutting it for years to do so. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and it was actually uh, Guillaume Pepe, the, the chief executive, now chairman of, of SNCF, who said in the very early days, you're designing this for several generations. Don't make the mistake of under-designing so that it, it runs out of use, usefulness, after just a decade or so. Uh, now, why so many trains? Because so many cities need to be served if this is to be the trunk railway. In fact, the trunk long distance transport system joining up the major north-south city uh, conurbations of this country. We're only going to build one new railway. Mm. It's going to take an awful lot of trains, an awful lot of people unless you think the future is sitting in a traffic jam on your electric car on the M1. We started off um, the early days of HS2 thinking we're going to be running as many trains as the Japanese, which is 13 or 14 trains an hour. But then um, early public consultation, early government consultation, no, no, we want you to serve this city as well and this city um, because they will all benefit. The economic benefit uh, and the social benefit of connecting more people far outweighed, again, the very small incremental cost of jumping the capacity to a practical maximum. When we first said, when I first said, we can run 18 trains an hour on this railway, then there was a whole load of naysayers going, well, show me where, where um, this happens in the rest of the world. 
the rest of the world, because I was chairing the the high speed rail um, committee of the World Railways at that stage, said we would be doing the same, but we made the mistake that we didn't build it for that capacity. We wish we had done. Now we're probably going to have to build another railway alongside it. Well, we're not going to do that. We build it once and we build it right. You're right about Pepe, Andrew. I remember in 2007 when St Pancras opened, Guillaume went round giving numerous speeches. And it really struck me that this expression, do not make the same mistake we did um, in not building with the future in mind. And uh, I don't know about you, Richard, but I'm grinding my teeth afresh <laughs> at, the, at the stupidity of the Prime Minister's decision about HS2 North, given Andrew's very articulate explanation of why we did this in the first place, and we're now denying ourselves the answer to those problems which remain. Indeed, and we'll, we'll, we'll go on to talk about that, that exact point in a second, but I, can, I, I do agree, it's so frustrating, and I think Andrew's <laughs> staying quite calm, really, saying you know, the, the very things that were done at the beginning to ensure we did learn the lessons of history and we did build in the future capacity are the very things that are now being used to beat HS2 uh, over the head with as the reason why it's got more expensive. And you just kind of go, right, there's our ability to forget, uh, sometimes willfully, um, is, is legion. Let's talk about that capacity issue, right? So we've, hmm. we've the, the, and, and Nigel's just mentioned the decision to cancel um so we've ended up with a railway that will go um from london we think right i'm sure we'll talk about that because that got discussed in the committee to birmingham but it, then it goes north and ends in a basically in a field near lichfield at a place that called hansacre junction which i mean hansacre has just become the most famous place in the railway world at the moment um and and then it join, rejoins the west coast main line but the problem is by doing that it um joins a network which doesn't have the capacity to run too many additional trains so for example we talked at the committee didn't we about the impact on say freight so when the railway hs2 joins the west coast main line at this Hansacre junction what people may not realize is that there's lots and lots of blockages on the west coast main line but one of them and one of the bad ones is the section from Hansacre junction north um, past a place called um, college um, up to stafford and that whole section when it goes on to crew is really congested so the trains that we are running today in terms of numbers of trains per hour which i think is something like 13 trains per hour across um across the the pinch point in the peak is not really going to be changed materially at all so we'll do really well nice and fast south of Hansacre, north of Hansacre, basically no real change at all i mean that surely wasn't in the plan andrew no i mean you just described a scheme to treble the capacity of the railway uh, overall railway between london and the north um that you're now saying well there won't be any more capacity because all you can do uh with phase one we're always dead straight about it with phase one is you're substituting uh, almost one for one the existing, existing service uh, there is no room for more freight uh, the the capacity improvement there is on phase one 
is between London and the the housing growth area of Milton Keynes, Northampton, Rugby. So there's uh, some of that surplus capacity on the West Coast in the future can be used for more um, outer, outer commuter, I call them commuter, but they're far more than that, the outer drain service to, to outer rugby and, and Coventry. We, it was always the case that just as with High Speed 1 or the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, that was built in two phases because you want to get going with something and you can't build it all at once. There isn't the, the resources mm -hmm. to build it all at once. And if you think what phase one or part one of High Speed 1 did uh, was deposit the trains having travelled quickly past Ashford onto the existing southeastern network at Farningham Road, uh, the other side of Swanley, uh, which, of course, was just, it was intended to be just for a couple of three years until we build the next phase. And it was very, very clear, and we, the government was always very, very clear, that phase one was get the trunk built up to the point where the line would bifurcate for um, the northwest and the northeast. And it would be followed very, very quickly by phase two heading towards Manchester. Mm. Because, as you say, Litchfield is not a particularly sensible place to finish. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's not a sensible place at all. Uh, the first sensible place to finish was Crewe. Crewe. Uh, why Crewe? Because then you release the capacity south of Crewe for a significant amount of additional freight. And I have to say that all the way through public consultation, the one thing, whatever people thought about high-speed rail or anything else, and some of the myths and legends that we've just been talking about, the idea that you could get lorries off roads onto rail, there was nobody who thought that was a bad idea. No. And I actually understand it gets even worse than that. So I was doing a little bit of digging into into the acts and um to your point about it was always the plan to go to crew right so there was never a plan really or very quickly never a plan to end where it's now proposed to end so at this place hans acre junction and you may want to kind of explain the difference between these there was a there were, there were a couple of schemes designed one was what's called um the slow line connection which has a certain number of train per hour capacity and then there is a fast line connection, which has a higher uh, uh, capacity. Um, and when the phase two act was, the phase two A act, sorry, so from Birmingham to Crewe, was given royal assent, the powers to build a fast line connection were effectively relinquished because there was no need for it because we were going to go, most of the stuff was going to go to Crewe. So my understanding is, there actually aren't at the moment any powers to build a fast line connection at Hansacre because that was relinquished. And worse, um, the land uh, needed to, to, to be acquired for any fast line is probably sat in phase 2A Act as well. So if we repeal the phase 2A Act or don't buy the land, it's hard to see how you can, you can build a fast line connection at Hansacre, and if you can't build a fast line connection at Hansacre, we've got an even bigger problem. I mean, th this just uh, sounds an 
utter shambles. What's the difference between the, two, the the connections at Andrew? Is that something worth just sort of dwelling on a bit? Is it so bad if we can't build a fast line connection? Uh, yes, it is basically. Uh, all again, all the work in conjunction with our colleagues at the time of with Network Rail show that if you wanted to pitch nominally up to seven trains an hour reliably onto the West Coast main line at uh, Hansacre, it had to be onto the fast lines because that's where you're effectively substituting uh, for the current Pendolino service. That was relatively complex to do, needed quite a bit of land, and that's just about the geography of that area and, and the configuration of the fast lines and the slow lines. But yeah. it uh, and um, Network Rail had a number of renewals it needed to do in the next 15, 20 years. So they were incorporated into a pretty major scheme for Hansacre that would allow for five or six years the seven trains an hour to hit the West Coast and, and travel north to college and not mess everything else up. Of course, or not of course, but in subsequent years, with the realisation, and it came out of the Higgins reports of about 2015, 2016, that you really, really needed to get to crew as soon as you could. And therefore, a quick bill just for those extra 35 miles to crew, which is the 2A bill, it could then be built almost at, by the time you've finished places like Old Oak Common and Euston. You could have pretty much built to crew. It's just that little bit extra across virtually Greenfield. Um, uh, uh, what was a sensible decision as a consequence of that was, well, let's not create all this this major building work uh, at Hansacre and the impact on the surrounding villages again. Let's have a cut-down scheme. The slow line, uh, connecting to the slow lines, is entirely successful for about the first two miles. Then you get into total conflict with the freight services, with the other passenger services, um, there is not the if you hit the slow lines, you cannot really thread seven trains an hour through unless you cancel other trains. Ah. Well, a capacity reduction scheme now, <laughs> and you, I'm sure there is a way legally to go back, change the whole thing back again, reacquire the rights to buy land, reconsult the impacts on people. That will take a few years and it will take a lot of money. It's and madness, this is, isn't it? For once, yeah. for once, we seem to have been ahead of the game and genuinely thinking long term, um, and we've just thrown the lot away. I mean, just to sum up, not sure I've understood that properly. So, we dropped the plans for high speed junctions at Hansacre because it was assumed logically that everything's going to crew. Now it's not, and has got to go back to Hansacre. It's been downgraded and can't cope. Uh, I'm just thinking back to the Conservative conference when Sunak announced all this, and it was introduced by his wife, who said, and I paraphrase, I know you will always decide for the long term, Richie, <laughs> even, if, even if that is difficult. Well, this is just completely the opposite to that. It's, it is madness if we don't do 2A, especially when you've just put a number on, on it, Andrew, that I, I wasn't particularly aware of because I've never thought of it. It's only 35 miles. It's basically the Stafford bypass. But importantly, <laughs> importantly, it's the Basford Hall bypass, which means freight from 
the south of England, from the East Coast ports, from the London ports, from cross country coming in at Nuneaton. Freight is, uh, there is a great amount of additional freight capacity between Hansacre and Basford Hall, unimpeded by fast passenger trains, if you do 2A. If you don't, can't do it. Forget it. It's just going to be catastrophic when you put it in those terms. And you can see from the documentation the rail freight groups put forward that they're painfully aware of it. Yeah, yeah you've got to be careful. I mean, there will always be somebody. It's a very big industry. Someone will say, oh, no, no, we'll find a way. We'll, we'll, we'll find a timetable that works. Uh, well, I'm sorry. No, we spent a won't. number of years with our colleagues in network rail working out every possible kind of connotation. And the answer is no. Going back to your earlier point, Richard, about select committees, there is a real opportunity here, as you've stressed, that they are important for the TSC to really weigh in and, and have some influence on its questioning of Harper and, and its pressure for the government, isn't it? it yeah, it, and I it, think we, we, we all made the point um, that phase 2A, the section from Birmingham to Crewe that we're, we're sort of banging on about here, is incrementally such a good idea. In fact, you could turn it the other way around and say, if you don't do 2A, for the reasons that Andrew's just alluded to, in terms of the design of Hansacre Junction, which I don't think there are powers to build the fast line. I think we'd have to go and create that. Yep. That's going to take time. That's going to take cost. Um, if you don't do it, it is a complete disaster. So phase 2A it, it, it is not a complicated piece of railway in the grand scheme of things. And as we said to the committee, whatever you do, we would urge the government to rethink that one don't sell the land off don't mess around get phase two a built it so changes we really need everything to, we really need to go out to bat um for phase two a given that numbers talk richard um have you any sense on given the the, the huge utilization potential that andrew's outlined not only for phase two a itself but the classic line from hansacre up to up to Bassett? What sort of BCR would would two A have? Surely that's got to um, be quite a powerful number, which would weigh in on the argument. Yeah, I, the honest answer is I don't know. But as Tom Worsley said at the select committee, it's not difficult to work out. In fact, nobody can really understand why these calculations weren't done before they made the decision. Because again, as Tom said, they're not that difficult to work out. I'm just thinking, guys. Uh, I mean, when the to Tom Worsley's point, when 2A was deposited in Parliament, there had to be a BCR with it, uh, the economic case. Um, he's right, it probably hasn't been updated, but it did exist at the time. Um, as there was a, a BCR, benefit cost ratio, for the stretch of line up to Goldbourne Junction uh, uh, around Wigan. The, the the best business case of all was actually between Crewe and Goldbourne because it missed out all the the difficult bits uh, north of Crewe and the congestion north of Crewe. The second best was between um, Hansacre and Crewe for all the reasons you just said. And that's but probably that actually got slightly better now, Andrew, because we will be able to take account of the avoided cost of not having to put in a fast line connection of uh, Hansacre, which you'll have to do if you cancel 2A. You know, the whole that, thing sort of becomes a bit circular. It gets worse than that, Richard. 
uh, which is 2A is uh, it's off the back of 2A that unblocking crew has been developed again jointly between HS2 and Network Rail, and crew was last rebuilt in the 1980s, early very early in my career. Uh, is not it is a pinch point the way it runs at the moment with uh, the traffic flows that we now see yeah and the hs2 scheme includes unblocking crew as you said at the select committee andrew crew's gonna have to be dug up anyway i mean it's effectively as the lnw left it's a dreadful station it's it's not so much the station uh it is the way that lines are threaded in north and south and there are multiple conflicts they come from history and its era as uh serving very different traffic and hs2 the hs2 scheme was designed to sort all that out it's a perfect illustration isn't it of just how pernicious the effects are when politicians meddle and de-scope a carefully thought out large design. That is true. That is true. Um, although that probably does take us neatly on, uh, I think, to the next section, doesn't it? Which is we wanted to chat about, because one of the things that did get talked about a lot in the SAC committee was this point about costs, why costs have gone up. Indeed. So there's lots of talk about exactly that, about how costs have gone up from the original design. And we certainly... We touched on this in the Myths programme, didn't we, Richard? Mm. Um, every news story you heard talked about costs spiralling, which we disproved. Um, but you gave the committee a few examples, Andrew, as to why costs have, have risen. Can you just sort of summarise them for a, the wider audience? Yeah, very quickly. And this is not about specifically about HS2, and it's not specifically about railways. It's about built infrastructure in this country. There are four four things that you can do to to cause cost escalation and in kind of reverse order the first is if you don't have a skilled workforce and by this i don't mean lots and lots of white collar bunnies i mean a skilled workforce artisan people trained artisans the industry the the engineering industry cannot train artisans if you just switch work on and off hmm. um so you start training people, and then you've got no work, you sack them all. Um, you need a steady program of work. So political decisions which just cut the rug from underneath that, whatever else they do, they stop the training of the next generation of people and the skills you need to build infrastructure. There's been a, a mood in government that you can contract out all long-term risks to the supply sector. I think it may have come from the sort of PPP era or PFI era. Um, the idea that um, you can say, for example, on high speed too, uh, no, 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 you uh, designers and constructors take the risk of earthwork stability for 60 years. Well, how the hell do you do that uh, as a contractor? Well, you design it to be absolutely bombproof. It's called over-design. Uh, and that's Nigel, happened, has it here? Has that oh, yeah. happened here? Do you think? Yeah, it's happened here. I, you, you know, list the schemes where it's happened. Um, Nigel gave a nice example in TSC about um, the the Great Western and the over design of the uh, catenary. It comes down to if you tell 
a very thinly capitalized supply chain that has got to take long-term risk. It can only do that if it over if it designs for every possible eventuality. But the most pernicious problem is actually with clients. And clients normally means government on big infrastructure. Every time a government or every time somebody changes the requirements, changes the spec, then you chuck away the design and you start again. Once you've got a project going, if you change it, the costs rack up very, very quickly. Look at Euston. It's had about four designs. The last one, I think, cost £100 million and gets junked. Um, you see it in the defence sector uh, with projects. If you change the scope, if you, the client, meddle with the scope once you've asked the builder to build it, it's no different to meddling with a builder who's doing your house extension. The costs just go off. It's not just that the contract. It's not the idea that the contractor is suddenly making silly money. It's genuine extra cost of changing this thing in mid-flight. And this is a huge project. We've got rid of the Goldborn Link. We've got rid of HS2 East. We've got rid of HS2 North. These are vast, vast changes to the to the scope. Yes, but it is no different. And a point I tried to make to the Transport Select Committee: HS2 is not unique. No, and I no, yeah, that's absolutely right. This is a this is an issue around. Um, major infrastructure projects, often government-led uh, or cliented major infrastructure projects. And this client point is really important. So you mentioned about capitalization of um, the contractors. So you look at these major contractors. These are, they're big companies um, uh, compared to your corner shop. Let's not underestimate these are big, big companies. But they're also, they're not, the, they're not as big as government, right? So if you ask them to take the liability of groundworks for 60 years. The first thing the design uh, consultants will do is go flipping it. Uh, I need to look at what my public liability, you know, my professional indemnity insurance is for that. Mm. Well, that's not big enough. That's going to wipe me out. I will just simply design this so it cannot ever fail, right? And you mm. end up with crazy costs. If you've got any example, do you, are you aware of any examples of that with HS2 particularly where the decision to just avoid risk as opposed to manage it, which is a you know a, a big issue, has just led to unit costs which are just off the scale. Okay. There are numerous. Each one doesn't break the bank, but cumulatively they do. They do. Um, if you dig a deep cutting, then when you take all the load off the, the sub- the base beneath that cutting then the ground because it's no longer got you know thousands of tons of earth on top of it will heave a bit so if you could magically come along and create a 20 meter deep cutting one night the next day the bottom of the new cutting would start to rise up a few tens of millimeters over a period of time if you want to have no risk in your design, you go, how do we hold that down? Because we don't want a railway that's rising when we built it. So you start drilling in hundreds of tension piles, piles that hold down the base of that cutting. 
But the reality of real engineering is you don't dig it overnight. You dig it over a couple of seasons. And as you dig it, the ground starts to heave. So you, and by the time you got to the bottom and you're digging out the final, um, the final surface, it's done its 80 or 90% of its heaving. You don't need to put in tension piles at all. Well, the, you know, the design of HS2 ended up with thousands of tension piles because if you're a designer, you don't want to take any risk whatsoever and a client pays because they've given you the risk. And you said, okay, these are big companies. It only took a couple of completely bad contracts for Carillion to go under. These companies are, cannot take those risks if you give them all the risks. They have to design for the worst possible situation. But the you point you made there about the client is key, isn't it? Because, you know, oh, I've, yeah. I've cliented projects before and bought things, and whether it's just a straight procurement job like buying trains or something like the West Coast, as a client, you understand these things. You know what risk allocation decisions you are making and placing on your delivery organization that they are then going to pass on to their contractors and you understand that this is going to lead to you know significantly higher cost don't you so does it does this not start with a client decision it does richard and and there are some good examples with national highways who've got a very good understanding because they have kept a very tight grip on it what the cost of a bridge or the cost of a, uh, a mile of new dual carriageway should be whether it's above ground or in a cutting or on a bridge and they know that if they mess around with the design the cost will be different but if they take some of the long-term risks then they know what the price should be from a competent builder. And the builders know what the price should be. And the builder knows, the client knows. And it kind of works. You mentioned the um, the masts that uh, prompted quite a bit, the catenary masts that mentioned got quite a lot of discussion on social media, Andrew, the fact that on the East Coast in 1990, they're two and a half metres into the ground. Um, one has never been known to fall over unless somebody can contradict that. Whereas on the Great Western, they were 10 metres into the ground for all the reasons that you've just outlined with the associated costs involved. Um, what about, I think, in a conversation that we had fairly recently, um, you talked about pile depth on overbridges. And um, one stat that sort of stuck in my mind was that we've got road bridges with 50 metre piles into the ground whereas the Shard has only got 65 metres. I mean, that sort of really sets it into context, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, those are approximate numbers. Um, but again, around the country, you don't see um, simple road bridges disappearing into the soil if they've got 10 or 15 metre deep piles underneath them, unless you're building them in an estuary. But in ordinary uh, ground, it's not a big deal. Uh, the only place where uh, where overhead line masts have been a problem have been uh, on the line between Crewe and, and um, Wilmslow, and that was for a very specific reason, uh, with the um, washing out of the, of the salt underneath 
the ground. Uh, the rest of the country, yes, there are problems sometimes with other bits of the overhead line system, but find me a mast that keeled over in the night. It doesn't happen. And yet, is this not is this not one of the reasons why we set up a National Infrastructure Commission under Sir John Army, who said after the decision to scrap HS2 North, he wasn't even consulted. So the client wasn't making any attempt at all to find out the implications in terms of cost and engineering of the decision they were about to make. I think he was one of several commentators who said, look, for the last 15 years, the strategy for transport, particularly rail transport in this country, has been built around um, the coming of HS2. Uh, it is the backbone of the body. And you now, uh, with its sort of random cancellation got a body without a backbone which is a kind of amoeba really isn't it <laughs> absolutely or but jelly I mean, at least a jellyfish i mean it just doesn't <laughs> you've hung the whole thing together around the capacity and the reliability and a, a design that will withstand climate change will not be flooded will not um in the, in the coming years and then everything else fits around it and all network rail strategic planning has fitted around it and transport for the north's planning has fitted com complementary to it and then you chuck away the backbone yeah. well there are consequences but on this point on cost um then is it fair to summarize that by saying that yes costs have risen uh, partly through oh, yeah. constant fiddling with the design, partly through engineering decisions that are the natural consequence of risk allocation, which fundamentally starts with the client's understanding of what risks they want to transfer to the delivery partner and to their contractors. Yeah, that's the quick way of putting yeah. it. And, you know, yeah. another example of that, Richard, is uh, Euston where, oh, right. I know, let's let's put a roof over the whole of the station. Oh, and the approaches, and the approaches. And, it'll, you know, that roof will only cost a couple of hundred million. And look at all the development we could build above it. Well, it's not cost it. The roof may cost a couple of hundred million, but it's completely changed the cost of the station because it's now an underground station. Um, and you go, yeah, so what? Well, the so what is, instead of being in the open air with a roof, it now needs ventilation, fire systems, emergency accesses and egresses, heating and cooling systems, because it cooks underneath there without them. Uh, it becomes a massively complex and difficult uh, engineering design problem. And... Is it any wonder that Euston goes from two billion to four billion? Um, it's just you name me somewhere else in Europe where the people think it's a really great idea to build above a station rather than alongside it. Even Canary Wharf, yeah, with its big high-rise towers, the station itself mm. is a simple station. Yeah, it is. And that's a classic example Let's... of a client doing something without understanding the consequences. Yeah. And you create a horrible atmosphere and experience for the passengers and customers, whereas Canary Wharf Station is a, is a lovely environment. 
Yeah, mm. and these have got to be places that people want to go to and from. Uh, and, and you've always got to have a an eye on cost. You know, we're not just building gold-plated palaces for the sake no. of it. But but actually, these things last forever. You know, I, I went on the Elizabeth line again the other day, for um, which I do fairly regularly, and I'm still, you know, I'm still very grateful because um, I was involved with that right at the beginning, you know, twenty odd years ago, that the decision to create you know, big station boxes with large circulation areas and, you know, it was taken because although it costs money, it's something that will now last us for generations. Let, let's just talk about this old Oak Common Euston thing because you've, you've touched on that, um, Andrew. Um, one of the things that the committee asked us, the Transport Select Committee asked us, was about, you know, is Old Oak Common a sensible place to end uh, this railway? And I think, I think we were pretty unequivocal in the response to that and um old oak common can take how many trains per hour and what is the consequence of that for the rest of the railway if we only if we end there all the modeling work we did said euston may not be finished in time mm. uh old oak common as a terminus could reliably keyword take no more than about six trains an hour why so few you say oh look at all those platforms but it's not about the platforms it's not even about the passenger handling although you, you could talk 20 minutes about the, um, the passenger handling and the time it will take to load a train with people with luggage um, with the available lifts and escalators put that on one side it was designed as a through station the connection between the up and down lines is minimal. It's an emergency crossovers in a separate small box to the west of the station. Neither the station nor that small box, it's called Victoria Road Box, can be expanded, not just because there's no powers to expand them, because they're wedged between railways and houses and uh, various other things. They cannot be expanded. Therefore, the entry and exit to Old Oak Common, if it is a terminus station, is very slow speed, and every train uh, will, in its journey in and out, uh, conflict with another train. If you ignore the rest of the network, you can theoretically find a path for up to eight trains an hour theoretically and that's fine if you then design the rest of the timetable through Hansacre, Crewe and all the other places specifically to fit with a minute by minute operation at Old Oak Common and if any train heads south late like two or three minutes late you've lost it you will be sitting in tunnels delayed etc six is the maximum you can achieve reliably if you try and run eight it will be like the castlefield corridor and the windsor link all over again doesn't work um, i mean and and for those who, who don't know those the castlefield corridor windsor link those are two <clears throat> very constrained sections of railway in the manchester area which have exactly this problem it's if anything is perfect when everything is perfect but the second something arrives a minute or late it stops being yeah. perfect and becomes a real problem so hang on, let's just understand this in, in, in real layman's terms. Then. So we're saying six trains per hour. So that means that the, it, 
that constraint then applies to the rest of phase one. So if I'm stood um, by the line in the Cone Valley um, with that fabulous uh, big viaduct, the most number of trains that are going to go past me are six per hour, right? Because the end point can only take six per hour. So Birmingham currently has three trains per hour to London. Manchester currently has three trains per hour to London. So there's our six trains per hour already. So Liverpool can't have anything going via HS2. Preston can't have anything going via HS2. Glasgow can't, unless maybe only two per hour go via Manchester. I mean, that is the practical reality of what we're saying, isn't it? Six trains per hour means that's the limit for that line. It reduces the capacity of HS2 by about 50%. No, no, by two thirds. Yeah, it's worse than that. It's, it was designed for 18 that from end to end and you now be saying six. Well, that was going to be okay as a kind of first year of operation, bed it all down, you know, get everything working nicely. People call it a kind of pathfinder service, a bit like we did with javelins on, on high speed one. Um, if it took an extra year to build Houston. But dear, oh dear, oh dear. My 50% was based on the idea that I'd heard 12 trains an hour realistically. Right, okay. Oh, oh, in, sorry. In, yeah, in it, more, it, it, it pretty much in, halves the phase one service and it yeah. screws that's, over, that's what I was talking screws about. over yeah. the long-term capacity for the next 100 years that this railway is It limits is the capacity forever. 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 I've had a great idea. Just whilst we've been having this conversation, I've had a great idea. You know how we had a competition to decide where the uh, headquarters of Great British Railways should oh, go? Yeah. You know, millions of pounds spent on site, right? I think we can now have a new com uh, competition uh, the government could have to decide which cities um, share the biggest hit to their services as a result of uh, HS2 ending at Old Oak Common because uh, uh, the one thing is for certain Birmingham can't have three Manchester can't have three, Liverpool can't have two and Glasgow can't have one if we end at Old Oak Common Well I think you've listed them Richard because Birmingham and Manchester are going out of the first call aren't they? So it excludes Liverpool Preston, Glasgow, everywhere else If I was being mischievous Richard I'd say given that arriving or departing from a station um, a number of miles outside central London when you want to head uh, to places like Westminster or Waterloo or Victoria or south of London. HS2 will be such a minority sport, you won't want to run the trains anyway. Oh, God. Well, um, that, that's, that's one angle. And the other, the other thing that really worries me is that today Manchester to London is, uh, I think it's, it, it may still be the biggest revenue flow. It certainly always was. It certainly I mean, it was, is. It certainly is. Yeah, it is. It's the biggest flow. And if you're not careful and Manchester ends up being, say, two per hour via HS2 or, or, or even one per hour via HS2, and the other two are going via the classic route, i.e. the existing West Coast main line, you are playing real, um, real Russian roulette with that flow because what's made that flow what it is in value is a frequent, reliable three times per hour service where it just literally just goes like clockwork, you know, bang, 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 bang. And the second you mess around with that, 
you know, nobody understands what the consequences of that are. It's and, virtually uh, a metro service at the minute, isn't it? You don't yeah, look at the timetable, you know there's there's three trains an hour. We're going to have to be moving towards a conclusion before too long here. But before Sorry. we go, Richard, something that you've just you've said and Andrew's made reference to, the connections at Old Oak. Uh, and in private conversation, Andrew, you said the same to me the other day about crew. It's about the connections at each end that limit the capacity, not the number of platforms. Does does one you want to give a just a quick explanation, probably you, Andrew, about what grade separation actually is for people that uh, maybe aren't as familiar with this terminology mm. as we are? Yes, and grade separation is fundamental to the way HS2 operates at Euston. It's basically separating by height the incoming services and the outgoing services. You will see that at Euston today with the so-called X line which means trains can leave from the low number platforms and get onto the right side of the layout going north without conflicting with the trains coming in from the north heading into the other platforms. Yeah, if everything's at a grade, at grade, on the level, then incoming and outgoing trains conflict and you reduce the capacity. If you have a flat junction, you cannot operate at the same capacity as if you have a grade separated one. Yeah. And Houston, and if, in Houston, if you want to run train, 10 trains an hour off, off a smaller Houston, the platforms is a bit of a problem if there's only six the moment a train has a defect and can't leave. But a much bigger problem is you have to have a grade separated throat. So trains can be leaving as trains are arriving. I think we're, we've about exhausted the bad news. Well, not exhausted the bad news, but we've been through the headlines of it. Um, and the takeaway for me is there needs to be considerable pressure led by the TSC and supported by everybody else to salvage 2A. I agree. And the facts are all there in the 50,000 pages of submission of the environment statement for phase one and the very significant number of fa uh, pages in the environment, sta for, for environment statement for phase 2A that was submitted to Parliament. Every word in each of those documents is factually correct. Yeah. And don't sort of ignore them and just talk to the people who have been um, conjuring up some myths in number 10 or something like that the facts are there go back to the facts they haven't changed the laws of physics have not changed where people want to go has not changed um, don't reinvent it right well i think it only remains at this point richard for us to thank andrew for a well thank you for absolutely... thank you for indulging me really um, a, master, a masterly summary of the issues and anybody listening to what Andrew says and not going away with uh, the idea that, we, that something has to be done about this, you must be either Mark Harper or Rishi Sunak because it is absolutely blindingly obvious, isn't it? But look, Andrew, thanks ever so much for, for coming along. And I, and I I suspect we'll be we'll be back here again, Richard, won't we? Because this is such an important subject. We're not just going to talk about it now and move on. We will have to return to it. Um, I have a sneaking feeling, and I, I don't think I'll live to regret saying this, that we have not heard the end of Phase 2A and Phase 2B. 
Absolutely. So thanks, Andrew. And uh, I guess we need to move on, don't we, we, Richard? Wow. What an episode that was. And um, how fascinating to listen to Andrew McNaughton. Absolutely calm voice of common sense and expertise on how the whole HS2 project came about. Um, And a couple of things stick in my mind, Richard, just before we go. One is that for once... As a country, we seem to be ahead of the game. We were thinking long-term. We'd planned on all sorts of things and how the whole transport sort of strategy in the north and around London and everywhere else was built with HS2 as its core, as its backbone, as, as Andrew said. And we've thrown that advantage away. We were ahead of the game for once. Um, and if you were to put me in a corner and say, please give us one point which you're taking away from this, it's having listened to you and Andrew talked about phase 2A and the massively damaging implications of not going ahead with that. Um, I think my takeaway was with everybody who's in favour of this project has got to do whatever they can to salvage 2A. I, I completely agree. 2A, it makes it makes no sense. It's the one of the cheaper sections per mile because it's relatively straightforward to build. It unlocks considerable so capacity much. benefits. Yep, it locks considerable capacity benefits. And worse of all, as we discovered, actually to re-engineer um, the junction, the connection to the West Coast Main Line, if you don't have it compared to what's currently planned, is going to cost yet more money and yet more time. So I agree. I mean, phase 2A, it, it's, almost as if, it's almost a spiteful thing. It feels quite spiteful to try to rush to sell off the land for that. There is no logic to it. I, I, the other takeouts I had from that were that actually, and it's to your point about being ahead of the game, uh, we listened to our colleagues around the world. You know, Guillaume Pepe, uh, a serious, serious guy who ran French Railways for many years, now is its chair, literally said, don't do what we did, do what I tell you. You know, really, <laughs> you, you need to avoid the mistakes we made so we did avoid them right and then now we get beaten over the head for it it costing a little bit more but then again as andrew pointed out speed hasn't really made that big a difference to to cost what has made a difference to cost is taking a sensible rational long-term view on whole life cost it's it was powerful stuff none of it makes sense i mean i remember guillaume pepe giving those speeches and being really impacted by his, his almost pleading tone at the time yeah. please don't make the same mistakes yeah. that we did yeah. so phase 2a let's hear it for phase 2a and do what we can to i suppose at the very least get the land safeguarded before we go we've got a bit of news richard haven't we we have got a bit of news fantastic news actually um so uh, probably most people think that what you and i do is um it all happens very easily and all the rest of it and it most certainly doesn't um and it's quite it's quite complicated to put these things together and we're having an absolute (laughs) blast but we've got some real plans for the future and to help deliver those we thought it was time to get some actual uh, professional talent involved in green signals um so we are delighted to welcome um steph foster to our team now steph is well known in the rail industry she's um she was at rail magazine with you of course nigel uh where she 16 um, years i know i know and and she she's coped with that remarkably well i have to say um 
but yeah. she uh, went through a number of roles and was obviously at the uh, towards the end uh, acting editors. You know, so um, Steph has, uh, knows the industry, knows the people in it. The people know her. Uh, she's truly outstanding. Um, uh, she loves a good list, which makes me very happy. Um, she's organised. She's 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 super professional, and she's got lots of brilliant ideas, as we have for this uh, podcast as well. And there's loads of other things we're going to be looking to do. So we are delighted um, that somebody of Steph's calibre has joined us. Welcome, Steph. And she's joining us as general manager. She is indeed um, right because so, we do need managing, <laughs> which which is a large part of which is is keeping us in order. Of course, she's got many years of experience of uh, keeping me in order, or at least attempting to. And it's wonderful that she's part of the team. She's already made a very significant difference, Huge difference. in in the couple of weeks that that she's been with us, and um, onwards and upwards to. Um, to ever greater things so welcome steph so thanks for listening thanks to you for listening to uh, episode six thanks once again to andrew mcnaughton for joining us um, you can find a link to watch the tsc in action if you want on the blog page on our yep. website greensignals.org it was quite a long session at two hours which is really tiring isn't it richard because you've got a laser like con- concentration um throughout otherwise you find yourself in that situation like i used to find myself when my mind was wandering in a french lesson and i'd just hear the french teacher say can you conjugate this verb harris and i have no idea what they were talking about <laughs> so you've got to avoid that so it was quite demanding but it, it is worth having a look not least to um taking the varying styles of questioning from the different members under the very yeah. capable chairmanship or chairing by ian stewart mp um do let us know what you thought of today's show. We know it's a little bit longer, but there were very big issues which Andrew wanted to discuss and we wanted to hear about. Uh, let us know any suggestions or subjects you think we should cover in the future to add to our list. Please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on podcast platforms and on YouTube, where which continues to be increasingly popular, as I keep saying, considering that all we get to look at is you and me, Richard. That's absolutely great. But the market is speaking. So who are we to contradict? But for now, for this episode, that's it. Please join us again next week for episode seven of Green Signals, when Richard and I will be chewing over I know not what yet. Um, I was going to say we haven't decided, or Steph hasn't told us yet, actually. So... um, (laughs) We'll we'll get there and uh, we'll we'll be doing that in due course. Please join us. But for now, from Richard and me, goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.